You recognized in that hymn we just sang, I would imagine, the uh, text that we've been looking at for a series of four Sundays now. Maybe you also noticed that the hymn sort of played around with the text a little bit. Uh, not exactly my favorite rendering of that scripture passage. It, it, it mixed up the order of the names and it also left one out. So test question. <laughs> What name did that hymn leave out that's found in Isaiah 9-6? Perhaps the hymn writer left it out because we don't hear it that much of Jesus, and it seems a little odd at first glance. Now, I've got, you got God in there, mighty God. It's the third name. What? Everlasting Father. He left out Everlasting Father, or Father forever, uh, which is too bad. But uh, you got it. You got it. And those uh, four wonderful names of Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6. Well, leading into our text for today, which will be Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we'll look at the uh, larger setting of that one verse that we've been looking at for, for some Sundays. Leading into that, maybe some of you younger folks can give me a couple answers to begin my sermon here. Okay, you ready? Uh, which one of you uh, children might remind us of what town Jesus is born in? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, right. And Bethlehem is in the region known as Judea. But Joseph and Mary, you may remember, didn't stay in Bethlehem for very long. Because Herod the king was seeking to kill him. So where did Joseph take Mary and Jesus to keep them safe from Herod? Egypt, you are correct. Long way to walk, huh? From Bethlehem all the way to Egypt. And they probably did walk. They probably weren't real well off. Maybe they had a donkey for Mary and, Joseph, Mary and Jesus to ride on. They went to Egypt, but they didn't stay there. I mean, that's not their homeland. They wanted to come back to their homeland. And so after uh, some period of time and Herod's death, Joseph brought his little family uh, back to uh, their homeland. But he didn't take them back to Bethlehem. Now, that's where their family's from. Remember that Jesus is a descendant of David through his mother, uh, but they didn't go back to Bethlehem because Joseph wasn't sure it'd be real safe because of the particular son of Herod that was ruling that area. So where did Joseph take Jesus instead? What became the place where Jesus grew up until he was an adult? Nazareth is right. And Nazareth is in Galilee to the north. Nazareth is up by the, the Sea of Galilee it was settled by the, the tribes Naphtali and Zebulun, Asher. Uh, Manasseh had part of, of uh, that area known as Galilee and uh, Dan as well. And, and Galilee wasn't really looked upon with a lot of favor by Jews in general. Okay? Galilee didn't really have the rich history that Judea had, Judea, the, the home where Bethlehem, David's home is, and, and where Jerusalem is, and, and Hebron. You know, so much happened down there in that more southerly part of, of the promised land in Judea. Uh, and in fact, that region 
uh, got its name from the tribe of Judah that dominated that area, and, and so it became called Judea, and that's why we refer to Jews to, today, because it comes from that, that word Judea. So Galilee was sort of the, well, it was sort of the other side of the tracks almost, you know, it was the, it was the back country. The, you may recall that uh, when, uh, when Nathaniel hears, uh, hears about Jesus coming from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know? but, but Nazareth and, and Galilee, they did have one really high point in their history. And I wonder if, if perhaps Jesus' father, his stepfather, we could say Joseph, told him about this. Maybe when they were making that trip to Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 and they were walking south down through Galilee and then into, through Samaria into, into Judea, that they would have gone very near this place that, that was sort of the highlight of of Galilean history, and, and probably every Galilean felt some pride in, in this event and remembered it. I, I'm sure that Jesus heard the story from his mother and heard it in the synagogue when he was educated, when he was taught to read and write there and, and learn the scriptures. Uh, because just, well, just about half an hour's drive south of Nazareth was, was the scene of one of the most important battles, a, a very unusual battle that, that took place there in Galilee. And I'm sure Jesus was told about that. He, he, he was told about the fact that, that the Israelites living in that area during the time of Judges were, were under the thumb, they were being oppressed by these marauding raiders. Uh, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and, and other peoples, other tribal peoples were, were, were coming into that area of Galilee and, and oppressing them. Uh, actually, they were doing more than that. What would happen is that the, the Israelites there living in Galilee, the Galileans, would, would plant their crops in the spring, and they'd, they'd tend those crops, and they'd pray over them and hope that they, they delivered a crop, and and just about the time harvest would come, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the others would, would come in. They, they were these semi-nomadic people. And so they would just come in and they would spread out over this, this large valley to the south of Nazareth. And, and they would just decimate the land. They would take the, literally take the food out of the mouths of the people. And year after year, this, this kept going on. And maybe you're remembering this story as I'm beginning to tell it because of its unusual nature. And, and, and well, really, you should consider it your story, okay? If you're, if you're a child of God, if you're a member of the people of God, this is your story, too. I'm sure that's the way Jesus learned it. This is your story, Jesus. This is the story of your people. Uh, because maybe you remember now the angel of the Lord coming and finding this, this fearful, somewhat cowardly young man threshing wheat in a wine press. Okay, he's, he's 
threshing his wheat in a white, he's hiding, in other words, from the Midianites and the Amalekites. He's afraid that they're going to take this little bit of grain he's trying to get out for his family. You remember that angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and he addresses him as mighty warrior. He says, you're the one that's going to deliver Israel. You're going to deliver your your homeland here, you're going to deliver Galilee from these marauding tribal oppressors that have so long afflicted you. And, and perhaps you remember the, the story of how Gideon doubts that. And the Lord has to sort of coach him and lead him along. And, and finally, Gideon's willing to take on the uh, assignment. And so he issues a call. The ram's horn is blown through the Israelite villages. The call to call to war is given. And so the militia assembles. They didn't have a standing army. So this is just the, the men of the villages and the cities. So they gather. A fairly large group, thousands, but, but still nothing in comparison with the 135,000 that are spread out like locusts all over that valley south of Nazareth, valley leading into that, that area that we know as Megiddo. Well, you remember that uh, God shows a very unusual way to win that battle, didn't he? At first, he, he weeded down Gideon's army. Okay, they're, they're up in these crags. The picture some some hilly country, even rockier than New Hampshire. Okay, hilly, rocky country with, with lots of caves in it, limestone caves, because the, the, the uh, stone is soft and wears away easily by water. And so... They're up in these caves looking down on this huge mass of Midianites and Amalekites and others. And, uh, and God tells them, okay, I want, you, I want you to take the men down to the spring to, to drink. You remember that story? And so they make this, this long trek. It's a, it's a long walk. You can, you, they have steps there now that you can go up. They, they made their way down to this spring, the spring of Haran. And, and God said to Gideon, watch the way the guys drink. Okay, and, and so men go down to that spring to drink, and, and, and 300 of the men, a minority out of the group, drink in a particular fashion. They dip their hands down and bring them up to their mouth to drink. And the Lord says, okay, those 300, that's your army. Okay. Now, again, remember, this is 300 men, 135,000 Midianites, Amalekites, other tribes. God says, this is your army. And then not only that, okay, he doesn't just weed them down. He says, okay, you don't need any weapons. Okay, don't give your soldiers any weapons. Okay, give them a ram's horn. Give them a pot and give them a torch so they can light that torch and put it in the pot and it'll smolder there. It won't flare up, but it'll smolder. That's how you're to arm your, your men. And so it's that unlikely scenario then Gideon, under the Lord's direction, spreads out his men on the hillside there overlooking that camp of the Midianites. 
And he says, at my word, you break those pots and those torches will flare up and you blow those ram's horns. And that's exactly what they did in the middle of the night. Suddenly, these uh, marauders down in the valley hear the breaking of pottery and they see all these these torches flare up and they hear the ram's horns blowing and they wake up out of a, a dead sleep and they, they look around at the hills, they see all these lights, they think they're surrounded by this huge army and so they grab their swords and they rush out of their tents and, and they start killing one another. Because, of course, they're different tribes, they don't immediately recognize one another, so the Midianites are killing the Amalekites and they're both killing other people and, and it just turns into a... a a total rout and disaster. Those who are not killed take off running. And the, the men of Gideon, and by now other Israelites there, other Galileans in the area, uh, come down into the valley, and it's filled with all the plunder of the enemy. And they plunder the enemy, and they chase down those that are fleeing and kill them as well. A mighty victory. Jesus would have heard that. His parents, I'm sure, would have said, this is what the Lord did for us on this occasion. By the time of Isaiah, however, in our text, that, that wonderful victory is remote history. The country of Israel has been split into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There is a near civil war. And now, now this little country, or these two little countries, at, at the end of the, the Fertile Crescent, if you remember the Fertile Crescent from your geography class days, the, the Fertile Crescent arcs right over and comes right down into Israel and Judea. And at the other end of that fertile crescent, empires are building. And one in particular comes to the foreground that Isaiah talks about in chapters 7 and 8. The empire of Assyria. And the Assyrian threat is looming over Galilee. And not only the Assyrians, but there are other countries around there that are, that are threats to these little countries of Israelites. Syria, capital of Damascus, and other countries in that area are beginning to, to threaten, threaten this area known as Galilee. But sadly, King Ahaz... Instead of saying, well, God won that wonderful victory for us back over so many uh, years ago under Gideon, God will, God will surely rescue us again. Instead of that, Ahaz goes political. Okay, he, he, he succumbs to that tendency that we, we often have in human culture to, to depend on the political sphere. And he says, look, I, I see Assyria growing as a threat. What I need to do is get Assyria on my side. 
okay? I'll make an alliance with him, okay? I'll do the politically expedient thing here. Yeah, they're pagans, yeah, they're cruel, yeah, they're heartless, but it'll be politically expedient for me to align with them. And so he does so. And Isaiah rebukes him in chapter 7 and 8, and he says, you, in effect, he doesn't say this exactly, but in effect, he says, you fool, you fool. You're putting your hope in Assyria. Do you know what's going to happen? Assyria is going to turn on you. You ought to know better than to trust them and instead of trusting the Lord. Assyria will turn on you and decimate your land. And that brings us to Galilee. Because who's going to get it first? What's well, Galilee in the north? They're at the end of that fertile crescent. The, the, the Galileans are the first ones to suffer from the Assyrian invasion. And that horrible, cruel, well, it was terror. They, they practiced terror, torturing and exposing bodies to intimidate their enemies. Poor Galilee, the Galileans were the first, first to experience that. And so Isaiah chapter 8 ends with this, this sad, tragic picture God's people are, are trusting in, in darkness. They're consulting mediums, and they've gone the, the way that we might say is, is sort of New Age stuff, and they've turned their backs from God, and darkness is going to descend on Galilee, Isaiah says. Last verse of Chapter 8 in our English Bibles. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So there it is, the setting for our text. The thick darkness of oppression. And into that, we have this wonderful passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through Seven. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You're a Galilean with this dark history, more recent history, since that day of Midian that was so glorious. Galilee always suffered the most in the invasions that the people of God suffered under during this time. In fact, uh, it, was, it was so much the case that the Galilee had, had sort of become a mixture of peoples, because with each wave of invaders, settlers came as well, and, and so, so the Jews down in the south in Judea viewed the Galileans as, as not really pure Jews, which they probably weren't in terms of biology, DNA. So they were, well, they were held in contempt. See that in our text? Verse 1 of chapter 9 is sort of a summary of the whole passage. So look briefly at verse, verse 1. In the former time, okay, that's Isaiah's time. That's the time, well, that's all the rest of their history, right, until the time of Jesus. In the former time, there was gloom. For her who is in anguish. He pictures the land as a woman who's in anguish. Not just slightly distressed. Okay, the right translation here is she is in anguish. That deep darkness at the end of chapter 8 has descended on her. She knows abuse and contempt. And And tragically, notice where it came from. Look at the verb there, brought into contempt. The subject is he, not they. Now, in a certain sense, we could say that they would apply. It's the Assyrians, it's the oppressors that have crushed Galilee and the Galileans. But Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, God is behind this. He brought her into contempt. She had shown contempt for him, and so he had brought her into contempt. Justice, right? But look at the great reversal that, that this passage is about. It's right there at the beginning of the verse. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The one who is in that deep darkness, no gloom for her. 
She had been in contempt, this land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, in this time that I'm promising, Isaiah says, he's, he's using the past tense here. He's using the perfect tense, literally. The Hebrew really has no past, but it has a perfect and an in-process. So it has a verb for something that's done, finished. There has a verb for something that's in process. He uses the, the verb that means it's done, okay? But he's talking about something in the future. This is what we sometimes refer to as the prophetic future. What Isaiah is saying is this is so certain to happen that I can say it as if it already has. So he says, in the latter time, in this time that I'm talking about, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. That's just another way to say the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He's talking about the same lands here. Galilee of the nations. Got to pause there for a minute. This is the only time that this place is called Galilee of the nations. It's really interesting. That word nations is usually used for non-Jews. <laughs> now, obviously, he's talking about Galileans, so these people are technically is part of Israel. But, but I really think the Holy Spirit has inspired Isaiah to use this name because it looks forward to that expansion of God's kingdom beyond the Jews to us Gentiles. <laughs> but look at what he does here. He has made glorious the way. I really think that's the, the best translation here. The, the word used here is the word kavod. It's, it's the word that's used for honor, for weightiness. It's the word that's used in the, in the commandments when it says you honor your father and mother. It's the word that's used when we talk about glorifying God. So I think that's the way we ought to translate it here, that God is going to make this land that was so, so much in darkness and anguish and abused, beaten down, he is going to make these people glorious. And so he uses this, he, 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 he goes into poetry then, this, this has to be sung about, okay? So he's got to use poetry, has to be sung about, and, and so he pictures that, that great reversal in these following, following verses. It's all about this, this great turnaround that God brings about. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them as the light shines. See the reversal? Darkness, light, darkness, light. You've multiplied the nation. They're not beaten down anymore. They're not being annihilated. And you've increased its joy. And I love the heart of verse 3 there. They rejoice before you. Talk about a reversal. I mean, back in verse 1, we had read that God had brought these people into contempt. And now they rejoice before him. It, 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 it's time for a festival. It's time for dancing and feasting. They're rejoicing before you. And, and he wants to convey the idea of how wonderful this joy is. And so he says, it's like joy of the harvest. For an agricultural people, this is, 
this is happiness. You know, we're, we're uh, sort of out of touch, uh, perhaps, with the agricultural cycle, except maybe Marshall. But, <laughs> you know, the, the harvest is the happy time. It's the time of rejoicing. And so, so Isaiah is saying these people are going to rejoice like it's the harvest. But he wants, a, he wants another illustration. And so he says it's going to, it's going to be like when you divide the spoil after a victory. You get all the loot, okay? It's like, he says in verse 4, it's like going from being oppressed, from having a yoke bearing down on your shoulders, somebody beating you with a rod, harassing you with a staff. And he says God breaks all that. He breaks the staff, he breaks the rod, he destroys the yoke. Just like on the day of Midian, he says. Remember that great victory, it's just like that, he's saying. Where you didn't even have to fight. He just broke your pottery and blew your horns and then walked in and took all the loot. And, of course, he's using that also because it's an image of that peace that comes when the enemy has been obliterated. And you can burn all the accoutrements of battle because you're not going to need them. It's like that, Isaiah says. That's what you have to look forward to. Can you imagine being a Galilean and hearing that prophecy? Perhaps directly from Isaiah, but most likely by word of mouth. And hearing this wonderful time is coming. This wonderful time is coming. Maybe you're trying to imagine what that's going to be like. You know, you've heard the stories about that great victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites, but... You haven't known anything like that. Perhaps you're trying to imagine what it would be like for, for what Isaiah is prophesying to come about. So what is it that brings this about? Well, you know where I'm going already. Because you've noticed the grammar here, right? Because verse 6 starts with 4. Okay. This is the reason. Okay, I mean, we have a couple of fours before that. We have four in verse four, four in verse five. Okay, so they're, they're sort of building one another. But here's the ultimate reason in verse six. Four. This is the reason all this is going to happen. This is the reason the joy is going to come. This is the reason the peace is going to be established. This is the reason why, why everything, everything will be wonderful. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Do you notice the plural there? <laughs> Pay attention to the grammar. We usually talk about a child being born to a mother or to parents, right? I mean, we rejoice at someone else having a child. But this is different. As Isaiah is saying, this child is for 
all of you as the people of God. This is your child. This is your son. And, and the government, the power, the authority, is going to be on his shoulder. Isaiah may be using an image here that I'll just give you quickly. And the, the image is of, of one who bears the key to the city. This shows up in a different narrative. And the key to a city is a big key. <laughs> and the guy who has it carries it on his shoulder. Could be Isaiah's making an allusion to that. The authority is going to be on his shoulder. You know, your shoulders were being beaten. But because he's got authority on his shoulder, your shoulders are relieved. And these wonderful names that we've looked at already, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's his character. That's who he is. And here's the, the ultimate promise in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Think about that for a second. Of the increase of his government, his power is always expanding. It's perpetually growing. And that will never end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, this is the kingdom of God, right? That's what he's talking about, to establish it and to uphold it. But, but not with injustice and unbelief, the way it was under Ahaz, King Ahaz, but with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, there will never be a change in this government. It's a permanent government. And what's the guarantee here? Don't miss the guarantee. You got to get this. You got to get this. If you're going to have assurance as a Christian. If you're going to know for certain that you're a child of God, if you're going to have an assurance that gets you through the dark nights and days, through the hard times, you've got to have this truth. Seize upon this last, last line in our text. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal, that's a really strong word. Can be translated jealousy. It's the same word that, that we find at the end of Song of Songs, where it says that, that love is jealous. It has a zeal to it that is stronger than the grave. The zeal... The jealousy of the Lord of hosts would do this. God is jealous for his honor. He is jealous for his people. He has a fire of zeal about him on behalf of his people. The guarantee that his people are going to experience all these wonderful blessings that Isaiah is talking about has nothing to do ultimately with them. 
If you think your salvation depends upon you to any extent whatsoever, you can never have assurance. Because there will always be that little bit of doubt because a little bit of it depends on you. Isaiah doesn't say, if you're just good enough. It, it, well, if you're just partly good enough, okay? If, if you just do your best, God will do this for you. He doesn't say that. He says, the zeal of the Lord, he uses the name Yahweh there, the covenant name for God. He, it, literally what he says is the zeal of Yahweh of the armies. Host is the word that means armies. He will do that. That's your assurance. That's your assurance. And so he did it. <laughs> he did it. We know he did because Matthew tells us he did. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. All those years, decades, centuries later, we're back in Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says, Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus is that light. The zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplished the rescue, the redemption of his people. And this one who is born and grew and lived a holy life, a sinless life, so that he could establish, just like Isaiah said, he could establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness because the justice and righteousness of God has to be satisfied. He cannot be God and be unjust and be unrighteous. So he has to be a kingdom that is established by justice, um, justice and righteousness. And for that to happen, for Jesus to have sinners like you in that kingdom. And for that kingdom to still be a just and righteous one, he has to take your sin on his back. 
He has to be the one whose back is beaten. He has to be the one who suffers that deep darkness of the cross beyond anything that we can imagine. That darkness of hell itself for the sake of his people. And because he has done that, because he has taken the sins of his people, all of their sins, not one does he not bear. He bears all of his sins. And in place of their sin, he wraps them in all of his righteousness. So that when they enter the kingdom, they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the Father can say, I am pleased with these my people because I see them in my Son and in his righteousness. Now, the zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. Do you want that for yourself? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's right here. It's as close to you. What's closer than you are to yourself? The kingdom of heaven is here. It is entered by the door of repentance. What a good and gracious God we serve. He has given us a door into his kingdom. The door of repentance. What a, what a gracious God this is. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have this whole list of demands for stuff you have to do. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't set a bar for you to reach. They, they just hope maybe you can make it. He says, here's the door. You enter it on your knees. Repent. Enter into my kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as you have done so much for us beyond our telling, would you just do this for us? Would you grant us a spirit of repentance? We confess we are so often so proud, so self-confident, relying on our own goodness, our own good deeds how pathetic they are. Oh, Lord, give us a spirit of repentance. May we, may we, as Luther said, make repentance a daily lifestyle, knowing that as soon as we repent, we receive the embrace of our Heavenly Father, know the presence of His Holy Spirit, Know the love of Christ. 
Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and graciousness to us. May we, may we be forever grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.